This episode, once again, is brought to you by Bearded Brothers Energy Bars. Organic, nutritious, delicious energy bars made with love in Austin, Texas. If you want to check them out, you can go to beardedbrothers.com and use our coupon code DREAMBEARD for 15% off at checkout. That's beardedbrothers.com, DREAMBEARD for 15% off. Go and check them out. Take that mantle, but okay. Yeah, on with your question. Yeah, <laughs> I just had to clarify. You don't. I'm not gonna let you put me up on some bad stuff. Hey, everybody! Welcome to the Dreamer Podcast. I'm your host, Brad Fernet. The voice you just heard was that of alpinist Conrad Anchor. I sat down with Conrad at outdoor retailer in Salt Lake City this year to talk about his beginnings with climbing, uh, how he got to be where he is now, his experience with risk and loss. We talked about his 2011 first ascent of the shark fin, a 20,700 foot unclimbed route in the Himalaya on Mount Meru. It was emotional. I mean, it brought me to tears and on my knees. The 2015 film Maru tells Conrad's experience and history with the shark's fin, as well as his partners Jimmy Chin and Renan Ozturk. If you guys haven't checked that out, I definitely recommend it. It's available on iTunes. It actually won the Sundance Audience Choice Award, and it's a spectacular film. 16 days up here. We lost half our food, and 90% of the mountain still above us. The center of the universe is unattainable. I also spoke with Conrad about his future goals, what he has looking forward, and the importance of advocacy for public lands and our national parks, which stay tuned after the interview with Conrad. I actually went to the March for Public Lands at the Utah State Capitol and got some recordings of Conrad and a few other people speaking at that rally. So I'm just going to jump right into it. Enjoy this conversation with Conrad Anchor. This was huge for me. Thanks, Conrad, for agreeing to come on the show. Thanks to Jess at SmartWool for letting me record the interview at the SmartWool booth. Awesome company. I'm so glad that I get to work with them. Don't forget to go to iTunes, leave a review, leave a rating. Check out our old episodes. This is season two, episode two of the show. So we have a whole first season. Go back and check them out and enjoy this talk with Conrad Anker. Uh, my name is Conrad Anker and I live in Bozeman, Montana. And I'm from Big Oak Flat, California. That's uh, where my parents and grandparents. So Cool. So basically the premise of the show is I like to talk to people who are following their dreams, doing something a little bit out of the ordinary and what they're passionate about. 
I've talked to poets, doctors, people who run film agencies, and you're definitely a huge inspiration to me as a climber and as someone who's been outdoors. So my favorite question to start with is usually when you grew up and an adult would come up to you and ask, like, Conrad, what do you want to be when you grow up? Did you have, did you have an answer? Was it, was it alpinist? <laughs> it was an alpinist, but um, it was... Um to be an astronaut. Really? Things. Yeah. Well, so that's three astronaut answers for me. Yeah. That's well, they're probably all people in their 50s. No, my wife oh. was the first one. So, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, 1969, we landed on the moon. Mm-hmm. So, uh, seven years old. So, it was like a big deal. Yeah. And so, I was like, wow, moon. And then, of course, the moon Apollo program went on mm-hmm. in the mid 70s. So, I was ever more aware of it. And yeah. So, I'd had a fascination with the dinosaurs and then it became a fascination with the space program and cool. NASA and so but um, barring that level of exploration mm-hmm. being a mountain climber is yeah it's <laughs> no, definitely yeah. they're kind of kind of similar you could say yeah. so did that kind of spark an interest with science and and studies were you a studious child oh well, there's a hyperactive child mm-hmm. <laughs> seems to be a trend among climbers. Yeah, I was able <laughs> to get my homework done, mm-hmm. and, um, but it was uh, yeah about age fourteen. I had this epiphany hiking out of the mountains and the Sierras with our family and mm-hmm. on a mule trip, and it's like this is it. I'm happiest in the mountains. So mm-hmm. um, I didn't realize it at the time, but it yeah. was um, became the point of the decision-making prism in my life. So yeah. whatever I could do to spend as much time outside, that was what I wanted to do. And you spent a good amount of time outside with your family, right? Yep, I was introduced Peak bagging to, and yeah. hiking. Cool. So around that age, whenever you're starting to get into the outdoors, when did you start getting into climbing, like technical climbing? Technical climbing, I was introduced to it about age 14 and 16, was doing... Um, roped climbing, that okay. sort of thing. So it was a bit different back before the gyms and yeah. Now you can. I mean, you have to be a good backpacker, and then you'd have to mm-hmm. be a mountaineer, and then you would like maybe get an invite to go climbing, and mm-hmm. it was this neat thing. And now it's you. you know, oh yeah, I saw climbing being advertised for yeah. a sugary, fizzy drink. I'm gonna go <laughs> check it out and go to the climbing gym. And yep. your first day, you climb five eight. Yeah. Second day you climb five ten. Third yep. day you climb five eleven, and the fourth day you've got sore fingers because you yep. haven't built that yeah. connected no, tissue up over time. I was at the gym the other day, and there was a six year old girl taking her her lead climbing test. So definitely seems like people have access to it, and at a very young age now. So it's a great thing. Yeah, it's great to see the sport growing. What's your thought, kind of sidebar? What's your thought on the Olympics, twenty twenty? It's a wonderful thing. Yeah. I'm very excited for yeah, it. Me um, too. They'll have difficulty, mm-hmm. endurance, and speed. So bouldering is difficulty, endurance is mm-hmm. speed climbing, and speed climbing is how fast. So, and the climbers are gonna have to participate in all three disciplines. So, it's gonna force climbers to improve their game. Mm-hmm. But uh, moreover, it's a great way to showcase climbing, specifically yeah. indoor climbing and uh, climbing that goes um, on. Uh, artificial structures and the understanding people have whether they're outdoors climbing a big mountain or they're in a climbing gym that connection between humans that 
understanding of they're here to help you out, you've mm-hmm. got your back, I'm going to check your knot, all those things. That's a great way for humans to connect. Yeah. And when I found climbing, it was wonderful because I played basketball, baseball, football. I was a hyperactive kid, mm-hmm. but um, I liked baseball. It was just precise and yeah. it made sense. Basketball, I wasn't coordinated enough. <laughs> <laughs> and football, I just was like, God, I'm getting bullied again. <laughs> so I kind of quit. <laughs> um, so it was uh, um, climbing found me and been fortunate to follow the path where it's led to today yeah so let's kind of walk down that path so around 14 to 16 you start technical climbing after you finish high school you went to school in Salt Lake here in Salt Lake right so what did you study here and you must have spent a lot of time outdoors when you were in school here as well the draw of the University of Utah here in Salt Lake City uh, was the mountains and being able to do things so um, I got a degree in parks recreation and tourism PRT so um, the University of Utah has one of the leading programs um, in the nation and their uh, program is part of the College of Health so it's in there with medicine um, and uh, surgery ophthalmology all those the hospital type Mm -hmm. things and so it's built into that and looking at parks recreation and tourism um, as preventative health care. So how mm-hmm. can we have a healthier population so we're not going to incur? So we're the uh, ounce of prevention part of the health equation there. And it's been, um, it's been wonderful. Yeah. I started out in geology and then I was, it was, um, <laughs> I think I got, I, I dropped myself on it, like to use a climbing analogy in a couple <laughs> of the math classes and then I switched over here and it was, uh, it was a good fit. Nice. So you're obviously climbing through college. When do you start kind of going down the path of sponsored climbing? And what did it look like? Yeah. Um, I started in 1983 here in Salt Lake City at the Hoyu Bar store, which was a specialty outdoor retailer that was eventually bought by the North Face. So that was my start with the North Face. So, um, and then in... Climbing, doing expeditions, 1987. Um, mm-hmm. We went up to the Kachatna Spires. I was 24. <laughs> we got $400 from the American Alpine Club to do our trip for young climbers. <laughs> and I think Big we got money. a sleeping bag, a tent, and a, and a pair of uh, pants and a jacket from North Face. So okay. I was like Stoked it. on it. <laughs> yeah. We went up and climbed in the Kachatna Spires, um, Gurney Peak, uh, with a team from here at Salt Lake. And... That was um, sort of the beginning, but it really wasn't um, sort of, it was, I was working to fulfill the dream of climbing as much as I can, Mm -hmm. so, um, but it was probably around 92 that um, North Face helped me out, sent sent me on a trip, and Mm -hmm. gave me a little bit of a stipend, kind of like beer money, but yeah, um, yeah, here we are. 2017 and <laughs> I'm an employee and yeah. part of the brand and <laughs> seeing climbing mature and the level of sponsorship among climbing athletes yeah. and all this it's been nice to be part of that yeah tell me a little bit about what your role exactly is and how it developed into what it is with the North Face I am the athlete team captain so we have um, about 40 global athletes and so it's um, kind of a fun thing but um I work with um, 
our athletes in uh, recruitment and development. Um, so that's one aspect of it. But within the brand, I do corporate social responsibility. Okay. So speaking out on behalf of public lands and climate change. So something yeah. I do on behalf of the brand. Um, help with the uh, product design and innovation team. So it's um, overall being there. So kind of like the brand compass to keep us true north and mm -hmm. uh, make sure that uh, we stay true to our roots as yeah. a climbing brand. Oh, that's great. That's <laughs> important. Yeah. And it was it was good to see you at the at the march yesterday. It's good that there are so many people in the industry kind of making a stand and speaking out on the public lands issue. So it's it's challenging. Yeah. It's intimidating. People um, bully you online and mm -hmm. They say, oh, you shouldn't do that. You're a climber. Don't speak out about things like that. Leave it alone, um, particularly with climate change. Public mm -hmm. lands is a little less contentious. People yeah. can identify the, okay, we need to save yeah. this bit of land. It's a good thing. So, but it, um, yeah, the, here we are in 2017, and there's um, public lands are something we care deeply about. Yeah. And it's part of our the crown jewels of our national heritage and to have them taken away, removed, um, made smaller just doesn't make sense. Yeah, for sure. It is, it is good to see that there are people defending them though. That's inspiring. So thank you for doing that. Um, just wanted to kind of cover like a few general topics, things that interest me about climbing and some of the stuff that you've done particularly wanted to talk to you a little bit about Meru and the shark fin how did how did that become a goal of yours Meru was an inspiration of Mug Stump who was a mentor of mine um, in the 80s and 90s and he had tried the peak twice um, once in 1988 when we were on a similar we flew to Delhi together we went to the Kishtwar Himalayas and they mm -hmm. were in the other part of it so that was sort of our combination with it um, and he perished in a crevasse fall in 1992. And so the, the dream was kind of dormant, went and tried it in 2003, got mm -hmm. schooled, came back 2008, got schooled again, almost mm -hmm. made it to the summit, trying it big wall style. Just and short. <laughs> came back in 2011 with uh, Renan Ozturk and Jimmy Chin, and we're lucky enough to make the summit on the 5th of October. So, yeah. <laughs> Very inspiring. Or no, it was the 2nd of October. My apologies. <laughs> cool. So that, I, it was a goal for a while, not getting it the first two times. Did that, like whenever you came just short of the summit, what was, can you describe that feeling? I know that you guys initially had said kind of that you weren't going to go back. Or yeah, at least Jimmy, Jimmy did. Yeah. <laughs> I was I was already thinking. <laughs> so, I uh, you're when you make a decision on the mountain, you, mm -hmm. you live with it. There's um, it's good to not have buyer's remorse, just to accept yeah. it and move on, and to make the right decision regarding uh, the safety of the team. So that's what we did. Yeah. Um, yeah, I live with it. It's people are like, oh, it must have been so bad. I mean, it wasn't like I lost the Super Bowl or something. Mm -hmm. Millions of people are watching me. It's like. Some arcane, silly mm -hmm. journey. <laughs> but I can imagine actually getting to the summit in 2011 was an amazing feeling. Can it you was emotional. I mean, it brought me to tears yeah. and on my knees. And we got down safely and a deep sense of uh, gratitude to 
Jimmy and Renan, Chai and Bob, the four people that um, Jimmy and Renan, teammates on the climb, mm -hmm. documenting it, and then Chai and Bob, um, Chai directing it and Bob editing it, um, made for a wonderful film. Yeah, yeah, it really did. It will long outlive my brief time on this yeah. planet. <laughs> and as far as climbing films go, it's unique in the fact that it really feels like it puts you into the experience of being there and not only tells your story with the peak but Jimmy's and Renan and it's a really good they did an awesome job at at connecting with the characters in the film with you guys but also kind of educating about the peak and showing the process of of climbing and even yeah, getting some you. comedic aspects when your portal edge breaks and yeah <laughs> and things happen can't imagine so. that was very comedic in the moment but yeah it's like <laughs> just another thing you roll with yeah another chapter or another I guess that was a paragraph in my crazy life mm -hmm. I could call Meru a chapter <laughs> <laughs> so. do you have any plans to someday maybe write a book yeah someday um, so I keep thinking about it more stuff you want to do first yeah or I, I'm just people approach me and they're like hey we want to ghostwrite your book and we have a publisher lined up now's mm -hmm. the time the Meru's peaking and you're not going to have that level of, and, but um, I don't want to write a book because it's financially the right time I want to write the book because it's a piece of art um, so but um, currently working on my masters um, oh, in really? geography at the Montana State University so I used to, to teach um, geography. Oh, good. Wonderful. Yeah, so it's um, recent climate change impacts on Himalayan glaciers and local adaptation. So Okay. Yeah, it'll be nice. So using the science the geologists and snow scientists have put together um, to measure um, the deflation, recession, shrinking of Himalayan glaciers. Wow. And so we know that. Um, and then specifically looking at the local populations and what are they doing in the Himalayas mm -hmm. from the Tibetan Plateau to the Karakoram to Bhutan to Himalayas to India and what are they doing to um, to mitigate some of the challenges are there what's the short-term prognosis um, mm -hmm. and what's um, so yeah it's it's great yeah it, hopefully it's something that's readable so mm -hmm. it doesn't become <laughs> a, a thesis that collects dust yeah. <laughs> on your hard drive <laughs> so how far into that process are you? I started in 2006, or no, 2000, 2000, so six years ago. Okay. Six, seven years ago, and then put it on hold um, because I was, um, it bit off too much to chew. Mm -hmm. And then uh, last year, November, I was out climbing in Himalayas and had a heart attack. So mm -hmm. it was like, boom, setback. <laughs> but not a setback as much as a, a moment to look at what I'm doing and what's important in life. Mm -hmm. And so this is something that um, I'm looking at. So fortunately, um, with the uh, Department of Earth Sciences, that they're um, able to work with me and how um, I, I go through this. So there will be um, directed reading mm -hmm. and then attending conferences and teaching class. So I teach a a class that's specific to that, a three-credit class so in the process of that. And then um, when I write my thesis, then that's what it's in there. So it's the graduate and um, master's and PhD programs, a lot of times they're 
ideally suited for someone in their late 20s, early mm -hmm. 30s. Uh, they're working at the university, they're, they're an adjunct professor, they're mm -hmm. teaching classes, they're, it's their full-time gig. Yeah. And so um, our kids are out of the house, they're almost done with university, so I have a little more free time along those lines, but I still have a full-time job. So being able to fit that in there in a better way is kind of what my goal is. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so thankful to the Montana State for being a little bit flexible. Yeah, that's great. So you mentioned your kids are all out of the house, and I've heard you say in interviews before something that I find really interesting and that I respect, that one of your expectations with your wife in raising them was they had to learn an instrument, a foreign language, and graduate university. Yeah. Were, they, were they all able to accomplish that goal? Yeah, they're, um, Jennifer is a wonderful uh, partner in life, so we... Uh, came together after the tragedy in 1999 of Alex Slow losing his life on uh, Shishapangma. And um, so we married in 2001 and I adopted the boys. Um, so yeah, three simple rules. Um, learn a second language, play an instrument, and attend college, mm -hmm. not necessarily graduate. Okay. So just attend, but with the expectation and hope that they will graduate. So mm -hmm. Max, the oldest, attended school here at Westminster in Salt Lake. Cool. And Sam graduated from Montana State, and Isaac's a junior at Western Washington in Bellingham. Cool. So, uh, well on their way. Yeah, they're, it's all good. And so they're 21, 24, and 28 as of today, July 28, 2017. <laughs> <laughs> so is, was that something that, that was an expectation for you or for your wife growing up, learning language and learning instruments? You played trumpet, right? Yeah, and I wasn't much of a musician. Mm -hmm. And um, my mother's from Germany, so I was raised with a second language at home. It's kind of a okay. boutique language. Yeah. <laughs> so I wish if I could overnight and switch my Spanish for my German, I would be. <laughs> so I'm still working on my Spanish. But mm -hmm. learning a, a second language, um, one, it um, makes you realize that you're not the only culture in this planet. Very true. Um, it builds neural pathways, especially if you're young. Hey, everybody. This was the point in the interview where someone hopped on the intercom, joys of doing it at a huge sales show. So figured I'd cut that out to save your guys' ears for a second, but I'm just going to jump right back in. Language and music does those things, so they help the developing mind um, to learn that. And for children, when they're young, to learn that second language is really key. So That's awesome. Yeah. So one other kind of general topic I wanted to cover with you, um, kind of where you are now balancing a full-time job with your master's program and a family and obviously being an elite level climber. So I'll let Honold and those guys <laughs> <laughs> take that mantle, but okay, yeah, on with your question. I just yeah. had to clarify, you don't, I'm not going to let you put me up on some pedestal. <laughs> cool. Well, having all of those things on your plate, how do you find the balance for say finding a climbing project or a, a peak that you want to do you still have high goals like Meru in mind and how do you balance that with the inherent risk involved in going up into the Himalayan the um, that type of climbing 
like what Meru is and um, probably won't be doing that. I'd like to, but <laughs> it's such a draw. Um, mm-hmm. But it is, it's really challenging on that. But um, precision rock climbing, sport climbing, uh, trad climbing, I really enjoy. And so there's, um, where I live in Montana, there's plenty of opportunity to improve my craft. And there's so many cliffs around the world. So that's mm-hmm. really kind of where I'm at. And I always enjoy it at the level I'm climbing. So it's um, being able to progress with that. Mm-hmm. But um, finding time for things is mostly working well with your time. Yeah. Get a to-do list, prioritize it, go through it, check them off, mm-hmm. um, and work diligently. I mean, you can get done in two hours what sometimes takes six hours if you <laughs> sit and you look at your phone too much or listen to podcasts. Just get your work done yep. and then say, okay, I'm going to work out now. And, and so... Whatever task you choose to do at that moment, be there and be present and do it the best you can. So kind of, I always like to kind of wrap the show up with kind of looking forward and looking back on all you've accomplished. What, what are your plans for the going down the road? What do you see in the future? In the near term future, um, Jennifer and I are, uh, we have the Alex Lowe Charitable Foundation, which is... Um, way to remember Alex mm-hmm. and um, to support local communities uh, of indigenous peoples in the mountains. So we have uh, the Kumbu Climbing Center, which is a vocational training for high altitude workers in Nepal. So over 15 years of, um, of work there, over a thousand graduates. So it's a, it's a, it's a deeply rewarding yeah. thing to do. That's um, great. And it uh, has, uh, we're helping the local people build a building which would be nice um, so yeah that's kind of finished that up hopefully by 2019 that's uh, when we're looking to have the, the finish date on that and then um, we're uh, oh, I guess I was like had to yeah, climb more rock <laughs> <laughs> um, I have a few bucket list things I'd like to float the Grand Canyon I've never done that cool um, so like to ski across Yellowstone. It's kind of a fun thing in the middle of winter and kind of see that place silent under the cloak of winter. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, these kind of become fluent in Spanish. <laughs> but i got to work on that. That's <laughs> so tough. It's sort of like goals to have. Cool. So That's great. There, keep you on track. Well, Thank you again for doing this. I appreciate it so much. You have no idea. Um, One thing I like to end the show with is just kind of random open-ended questions that can or can't have an answer. And by far my favorite one that will either stump you or you'll have an answer for it. No need to have an answer for it is what's the hardest you've ever laughed? The hardest I've ever laughed? Um, Well, recently... (laughs) <laughs> my wife and I were driving down the road and there was a, a young couple and they had a puppy and the puppy was on the leash and we stopped to let them cross the road and the puppy was just bouncing and pulling on the leash and just um, it was just a sort of a celebration of life we were both mm-hmm. chuckling in the car so I don't know if that's the hardest I've ever laughed but yeah. 
the hardest and most fun laugh I've had in probably the last three or four months. Well, that's great. Just watching the dog like <laughs> bouncing off the leash and the leash is pulled tight yep. and the couple's walking. And so <laughs> little simple things like that. Yep. Um, I don't like to laugh at the expense of other people. Mm-hmm. It's just not my um, my style. But um, every now and then, uh, Stephen Colbert elicits a good chuckle mm-hmm. when I watch his show. But <laughs> um, yeah, they're <laughs> cool. Well, another one is I always like to ask people because I obviously do a podcast. I listen to a lot of podcasts and like to consume things like this and learn new things so I always like to ask people to recommend something that they've been interested in recently either a book a podcast tv show um recent book that I'm reading is uh thank you for being late by Thomas Friedman okay so if you've uh, followed him he's a columnist for the New York Times and I've read his books over time so from uh, from Beirut to Jerusalem um the world is flat um and then this most recent book, so it's really interesting. So he looks at uh, change and how it's affecting culture and society, Great. Uh, technological and some of the challenges that we're facing. Cool. Well, that is pretty much all I've got. So Conrad Anchor, thank you so much yeah. for doing this. Really appreciate it. Hope you have a great <laughs> rest of the show. Uh, yeah, we'll go uh, get some people interested in socks. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Thanks again to SmartWool for letting me do this here. All right. Big thank you again to Conrad for sitting down with me. While I was at Outdoor Retailer, I also had the opportunity to attend the March for Public Lands. The protection of public lands is a huge issue, not only for the outdoor industry, but for outdoor recreators in general. So essentially, about 3,000 people marched on the Capitol in Salt Lake City, and outdoor retailers leaving Salt Lake City after 22 years of being there, after Utah Governor Gary Herbert called on Donald Trump to repeal the newly created National Monument, Bears Ears National Monument. I think we all value public lands more than people realize. I think times have changed, though, as far as how we manage public lands. An example of that is Native American tribes. Most of this land which you talk about was once ours. It was taken, right? There's no reason to cry about it, but it was taken. We weren't involved. And here you sit now with your public lands an attempt to take it without your involvement. What I hope you learn and what we try to teach you is you need to speak up. You need to stand for what you believe. That was the Ute tribal chairman, Sean Chapoose, who is also the founder of the Bears Ears International Coalition. Now, Bears Ears National Monument protects 1.9 million acres of land, over a hundred thousand archaeological sites, numerous cave dwellings, and a good amount of rock climbing and outdoor recreation. So not only is it important to outdoor recreationalists, it's important to the scientific community and the Native American community. 
our mentality is we're caretakers of it for the generations to come. And I think you as citizens, you know, who participate in rock climbing or mountain biking, whatever your endeavor is, need to remember one of the rules we had as native people, never take from up more than you need. Leave it in a better condition than when you found it. Now, if these public lands are put in the hand of the state, potentially to be sold to the highest bidder, not only would there be a recreational impact, there would be an environmental impact, there would be a cultural impact, but a tremendous economic impact. Just outdoor retailer leaving Salt Lake City is going to be an estimated $45 million loss to Utah's economy. And I think from Canyonlands to the southeast, to Bonneville Salt Flats in the northwest, unparalleled public land stretch in every direction and there's probably no greater scene on earth than Bryce Canyon after a January snowstorm or Indian Creek at dawn. So we know the spiritual reasons we go outside, but outdoor recreation actually generates $12.3 billion for the state of Utah every year and employs 110,000 people. One thing about those jobs is they're sustainable and they have continuity. And outside of economic, environmental, cultural arguments, Conrad Anker spoke of a historical precedent to protect our public lands. Balance is, after all, what we seek in life. Too much work and you get grumpy. Too much play and one becomes indolent. This principle is what brought the 26th president Teddy Roosevelt to camp under a tree with guiding conservationist John Muir in 1903. While they came from different ends of the political spectrum, they realized that the natural heritage of our nation was too precious to be without guidance. We cannot afford to squander it. This nature experience, some 114 years ago, was the beginning of the National Park Service and our understanding the value of wild nature. Roosevelt went on to create five national parks, 18 national monuments, 55 national bird sanctuaries, and 150 national forests. To say that Teddy Roosevelt has an impact on the American West is an understatement. Much of what we live for and stand for today is because of this man's interpretation of generational fairness. We must leave something for future generations. Part of TR's legacy was the Antiquities Act of 1906. This law gives the president authority to designate monuments for cultural, natural, and scientific features. 16 presidents have used this to create 157 monuments for all of us to enjoy. From Devil's Tower, the first national monument, to the Statue of Liberty, we have made sure part of our collective heritage is preserved for future generations. With President Trump's directive to review the 26 most recent monuments, we have a direct assault on the lands we all own and share. Watching over this is Secretary Zinke of Montana. Secretary Zinke, you state you are a fan of Teddy Roosevelt and of public lands. This is what your Twitter feed says. You'll hear from us today. 
If this is the case, please use your time at the Department of the Interior to leave our wild and cultural monuments as they are. We expect this, we ask this of you. You are a man of honor. Your background as a SEAL and your time in the backcountry has steeped you in this. You give your person your word, whether it's a belay or a dedication to public land, and you stick to it. Your promise to Montana voters, and I'm one of them, was built on public lands. By honoring your word to Montana voters, which, you brought, which brought you to the interior, you will be honoring Teddy Roosevelt. I have no idea what Roosevelt would make of the current situation. Yet part of my imagination has him encouraging you, Secretary Zinke, to spend a few nights in the wild here at the Bears Ears in southern Utah with tribal elders, much in the same way that Muir and Roosevelt spent three days in Yosemite and got to understand each other. So I would encourage any and all of you listening to this, if you have a passion for outdoor recreation or the environment or cultural implications that are involved in the possibility of losing public lands, not just in Utah, but all around the country, please contact your representatives, let them know that you don't agree with it, and make sure that your voice is being heard as much as you can. I'm going to wrap it up here. Thanks again for listening, guys. Thanks again to Conrad Anchor for sitting down with me at Outdoor Retailer. It was a huge honor to have a conversation with him. Go check out the film Meru. Go to conradanchor.com to keep up with him. Look him up on social media. Don't forget to go rate and review and subscribe to the show if you enjoyed this episode. I'm going to try to release one possibly every week, maybe every other week. So stay tuned for more. Thanks again. Have a great rest of your week. Bye.